0: This is Straight to the Source, your destination for food, views, and big ideas. Brought to you by two of the best in the business, Tonya Barr and Lucy Allon. Join them to discover some of Australia's most dynamic food, hospitality, and agribusiness leaders.
1: Hello, and welcome to Food, Views, and Big Ideas. I'm Tanya Barr, and I'm Lucy Allen, and this is the podcast from us here at Straight to the Source. In this podcast, we will be introducing you to the people who are driving our food and hospitality industry forward, whether it be on the land, in the water, in the kitchen, or from the boardroom.
0: Each of our guests are playing a significant role in the evolution of Australia's food identity and culture, and we want you to know who they are, their views, and their big ideas.
1: Welcome back to Food Views and Big Ideas. I'm Tanya Barr, and today I'm catching up with Master Pastry Chef Christopher Tay. Christopher is the founder of Black Star Pastry, and many may or may not know the guy behind the strawberry watermelon cake, which, by the way, was the most Instagrammed cake in 2015. Since moving on from Blackstar, Chris has been continuing his craft and following his passion. He's now embarking on a new venture, and he's here today to talk about it. Good morning, Chris.
0: Good morning, Tonya.
1: It's wonderful to have you here. I know. Thanks for making the trek over the bridge.
0: Yes. Uh, 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 my, my sons go to school around here, so I'm here a lot, actually.
1: Oh, okay. Well, we can make it a regular thing. Yes. So you've had an incredible career to date. And many look to you as the quiet, and I actually seen many sides, but not so quiet achiever. Let's talk about your career. When did you start cooking?
0: I started cooking in 1994. And I don't look that old. <laughs> I, you know, I believe that well. <laughs> the work keeps you young. That's what I believe. I... Met my wife when I was just about to do the HSC, which meant that I missed out on the course I wanted to do by one mark. So I didn't end up going to pharmacy like my parents did. I ended up at university, did a a Bachelor of Arts in psychology. But during that time, I was cooking all that time. Um, Actually, I was doing all sorts of jobs. I was a barman. I was a waiter. Uh, Started as a kitchen hand.
1: Is this all in Sydney?
0: Yes, in okay. Sydney. So um, my wife and I come from Haberfield, just uh, in the inner west, and we've been there all our life. I'm a sort of staple person. I'll be there <laughs> my whole life. So the day of my final exam, I did get through my degree, but I put that all aside. I went straight into the kitchens, and I just have never looked back. And that was in 1995.
1: So what actually drew you into the kitchen? Was it the chemistry side of things? Was it the science? Was it the, the food, the creativity?
0: It was the buzz of service. Mm. And I'm sure chefs out there understand mm. it. There's something magical about just being in that team. I love being in a team. And it's part dance mm-hmm. and it's part discipline and routine. And when it's going beautifully – it's just a wonderful thing to be part of, and I find it quite addictive and uh, this is this is kind of where my happy place is service.
1: well, we're talking a career of what we're talking twenty five years yes, yeah, and is that what is that what keeps you in it? Is it that same that same drive you had all those years ago? Is that the same motivation today?
0: Well, creativity is part of it, and creativity is made up of not only the food but also building a uh, what would you call it call it a brand or 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 a place or even a community of uh, customers and and staff
1: i i think of it as an ecosystem
0: yeah Mm. it's like kind of nation building in a way Mm -hmm. that's really exciting Uh, And there's all parts of that job. Sometimes you need to be in the kitchen. Sometimes you need to be on the computer. And sometimes you need to be cleaning the floors. But my happy place really is just interacting with customers. They tell me what they would like. I say, yeah, I'd love to get you that. And I go get it. Have a little chat and they go.
1: So you're in the kitchen 25 years ago and you're finding your fate. Did you set off in the patissiere world or was it more in a different direction?
0: Okay. Uh, a very far place from where I've ended up. So I I started as a kitchen hand in this cafe, and it was a very kind of hip cafe back in the 90s full of models and actors, and I, I just fell in love with that lifestyle, though I wasn't quite part of that world. Ended up, the head chef was fired for turning up to work drunk, as he did in the 90s, they decided to hire me as a head chef and I did went into that right after my last exam and basically discovered that I couldn't cook. <laughs> I was doing it pretty badly. It was burgers and chips and all sorts of stuff. I remember a funny story where someone we had lamb shanks on the menu and someone ordered it and the waiter said, oh, oh we've taken an order for lamb shanks and you told me there was none left and I, I just didn't have enough experience I said, I'll just cook it right now, to order. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, it takes three to four hours to really do it well. Uh, and yeah, needless to say, I was eventually fired from that job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so
1: how did you cook it? Like, what What was your thought process? I just process? seared it. Okay. Yeah. Seared, seared, seared it, tough. rested it, plated mm, it up. There you go.
0: Then I realized I needed to go and get some education and some training, so I went into a, an apprenticeship and back then, it was a different scene. Not enough restaurants, too many chefs. And I was of the belief that who would take me? I'm too old already. You know, How old were you? 22. 20, you know, and I'm watching 16 and 17-year-olds start their careers and saying, oh, gosh, you know, I've, I've missed the boat. Mm-hmm. Isn't that funny?
1: Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, there's irony in that.
0: So my wife really encouraged me to just go and knock on doors and ask ask every place that I wanted to work in and it was very hard to get a job i'm, I'm I have to say I'm, I'm quite a I would hire me as a young chef, so conscientious and passionate and and, and energetic yet back then it, it were just it was very hard to get a good job. needless to say I mean I ended up in some nice places, but I really wanted to get into the fine dining side of things. Yeah.
1: And at what point did that happen?
0: I ended up at Belmondo in my last year of my apprenticeship, and that's where I got into the dessert section. So Belmondo was a two-hat restaurant, and back then the hat systems were very, very important. They kind of determined whether a restaurant was successful or not, and if you lost a hat, it could mean a uh, disaster. It could mean no one would turn up. Uh, The pastry chef there just spotted my kind of temperament, just calm and and methodical and said, you need to be on desserts. And I just have never looked back since.
1: So did you have a mentor in that space?
0: I did. Oh, look, it was a funny space. It was an Italian restaurant, Chef uh, Stefano Manfredi. Mm -hmm. He's an amazing guy. He's just got a life uh, dedicated to food, Italian food. Now, there was his mother, Franca. There, so she would have been in her seventies, still working every day in the kitchen. Brother Franco there as well, and another head chef Nicole Illawan. So uh, I think there were four head chefs in that one kitchen, and very Italian. So they'd be yelling at each other over service, you know, arguing as they do. It's nothing wrong with that. No, no, no. very passionate people. Uh, but the dessert chef Daphne. Uh Morales, yes, she really looked after her her little dessert team and pushed me and I was so nervous. Oh gosh, the first day on dessert section, I remember I got there my hands were shaking and there was a whole box full of toffee cages. Have you ever made one? You get toffee and you, you oil the back of a ladle and then spin the toffee over it. First thing I did was I got there and I dropped this whole box of toffee cages <laughs> and I was just mortified oh, my goodness, they would have taken hours to do.
1: At that moment when that happened, were they supportive or was that something you just said, I've just got to get it together and move on?
0: No, they were very supportive. I do have to say I had to become the person I needed to be to be successful at service, and it wasn't natural for me. So naturally, I can be a little shy. I can be quite nervous, and when the pressure's on, sometimes... Or I used to uh, freeze, and when, when the dockets would come up and I'd get deeper and deeper in the hole, oh, my brain would just start frying. And I, at one point, I just realized that I had to overcome this and become kind of steely and cold during service. And it took a long time; it took years.
1: Well, when you say it took years, but how did you get the tools to work through that?
0: Little success after little success. This is this is how. Uh, success is built you know every little win you get gives you confidence but really uh, I remember going in on the bus and closing my eyes and just picturing myself in in service and the dockets coming up and me just taking one and knocking it out and going for the next one and the next one just being very clear and cold and that's what I'm like now actually like I'm great in a crisis Mm. if the world went to pot like I'm I'd be the one that could get the team together and go find somewhere to go. It's just training. But naturally, I'm not wired like that.
1: So if a young chef comes in the door and he applies for a job or she applies for a job, is that something, you know, you 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 aren't discouraged by if, if they're shy? Or is that something that you see in other chefs and go, you know what, I'm going to help you?
0: What you're looking for is passion. I just don't think there's enough enthusiasm in this world. And I even feel that it's discouraged. I mean, you, you, sh- you should be able to go to work and say, I love my job. I want to do a really good job without mm-hmm. the person next to you going, you're an idiot, mate, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> what time do we knock off?
0: <laughs> yeah. But that's what you're looking for. You're looking for people with just passion because you know that at some point the fun wears out and it's a grind and you've, if, if you've just got it, that uh, fire burning in you, it just doesn't feel like work.
1: Well, that's exactly right. But how, how do you take that passion? So you're working in this fine dining sphere, and then you find the dessert station, mm-hmm. and you find your, find your mojo in that space. And then walk us through what that looks like going from, from where you were there to starting Black Star Pastry. How okay. did Black Star Pastry come to be?
0: Right. So I wanted to be, and I started as a savory chef. Uh, initially, I, I wanted to own a three-hat restaurant, have a beautiful, decadent, lovely space and, and cook savoury food. But uh, look, I, I, I do prefer um, going home smelling of, uh, you know, flower petals and,
2: <laughs> and <vanilla>. icing
0: sugar <laughs> rather than uh, prawns and oysters. Uh, I went to Claude's restaurant uh, just as I was finishing my apprenticeship. And they really needed a head pastry chef and I was just so underqualified, I felt. So I went work with Tim Pak Poi. I was just on the cusp, just almost 30. I was just about to leave to go and work in Europe because I thought that's what you had to do to get a great training. Just dropped in to see Tim because I saw an ad in the paper for, for a chef and he said, look, If you go overseas, you'll probably just be peeling carrots for a couple of years, Chris, but I'll teach you everything I know about cooking. And that's not just cooking, but just how to eat, the whole art of gastronomy. Uh, And the price is that you stay here four years and do a whole new apprenticeship with me. Um, And I thought about it deep and hard, and I thought he, he was actually right. So I did do that, and I stayed four years, and that's was just crucial for teaching me everything about cooking not just cooking but dining hospitality you know treating treating someone uh as a guest when they come into your establishment i i worked with uh, professionals amazing chefs craftspeople, and the waiters there oh you know they were so good they were almost psychic they I remember before I, I, I took the job, I had dinner there, and you'd think, oh, I wouldn't mind a glass of water, and he was the waiter with a glass of water. Do you know? I wouldn't mind another glass of wine, and you know, he'd come up and say, would you like another glass of wine?
1: Is that where you started looking at where the ingredients were coming from in the back door of the kitchen?
0: Definitely. Oh, yes.
1: Because I, I know we've had this conversation on in the past when we've been on these truffle hunts, and the first time that you were, you know, the truffles, um, that you received truffles in the kitchen, and I believe it was at Claude's.
0: Yes. Well, this is going back to when Australian truffles were brand new. Like No one had them. Mm. So Duncan Garby in Tasmania picked Claude's restaurant to showcase the first truffles he got out of the ground. So I remember one morning I came into work and Tim was there with six jars of truffles and said, Chris, have a look at this. I'd like you to grade these truffles from best to worst. And I was just thinking, who, who gets to do this in their job? It was quite amazing. Uh, but, I mean, it, it did get quite ridiculous at times. Uh, I remember one recipe calling for partridges that had been trapped in grain solos over winter and <laughs> things like that. Uh, we used to make our own... Rose water from organic roses that were picked and sent up from Tasmania. Oh, and, I mean, beautiful to do and and wonderful to work with. But um, then I, uh, I ended up at Key Restaurant.
1: Right, okay. As
0: their pastry chef. And we were doing 300 covers for lunch and 300 covers for dinner. And you just can't do that for that kind of scale yet. Uh, Pete Gilmore at Key was able to put out food just as beautiful. So that was really important to learn because when I ended up doing what I did at Blackstar, scale was uh, f- critical to understand how to take something beautiful and make it uh, on a large scale yet not lose quality.
1: What's the meaning of the name of Blackstar?
0: Okay. It is about rebelliousness. Really? So, I wanted to get out of that system. I was 32. I felt like an old man. And I wanted to carve my own path in this world. And I threw everything behind it. And the name comes from a Radiohead song. Because I was into Radiohead. I've been playing like in bands and things when I was younger and back into it now. So, the name comes from the Radiohead song, Black Star. Plus, it just kind of had a sing to it, which I really liked.
1: So you find this venue in Newtown. Yes. You've got a name, Black Star.
0: Yes. The
1: doors are open. Uh It's, It's quite an old building. It is an old building. And so what was your vision? What year was it? And what was your vision for that? And how did you take that idea and grow it to what it ended up being?
0: I wanted to put together in one place all the food that I loved to cook and I loved to eat, including caramelized puff pastry with chestnuts and uh, tat tan and lamb shank pies and things like that. These are just things that I love to eat. And back then, uh, there was quite a divide. Like the, the talented chefs all were trying to get into fine dining. And so. When there was a place that had a chef that had trained there and then, say, opened something more accessible like a cafe or bakery, that was actually quite new. Whereas Mm. now, I think, there's great chefs everywhere and you get great training in cafes, you get great training in little restaurants. So that was quite novel. So suddenly uh, patisseries went from finger buns, I think, and muffins to very innovative risky stuff
1: but did you envision that it would become what it ultimately did become and it's still continuing on today without you at the helm but yes. was that your long-term long game plan or did that just evolve and just the snowball just kept getting bigger and bigger
0: no I had no plan actually right <laughs> <laughs> I had no plan except to get through it I borrowed money off my dad he just retired, so he had some cash. And I remember my mum saying, I don't expect this money to ever come back because they were in small business. They know how tough it is. Uh, we had just had our first child, so we were living off the baby bonus while it took six months to fit out a little terrace in Newtown. And then when the money ran out, we said, we have to open tomorrow. And that's what we did. And in a way... I am gladful I was so naive because if I wasn't and I knew what was ahead of me, I probably wouldn't have done it.
1: Mm, The risk could have been too great. Yes. But without risk, you don't have reward.
0: Yeah, that is true. It is true.
1: Tell me about the iconic strawberry watermelon cake.
0: Come on. (laughs) That one, I do my best work under pressure. So running a little cake shop and one of my friends said I'm getting married I love you to do the cake and I just want you to go to town just make something really different so I saw the finished product in my mind except in the middle was more like a a jelly stripe or something just something red
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and I believe that when you're creating stuff it's a a holistic thing. So at the moment, I was really into eating a lot of fruits. And so what, if, what I thought, what if this red stripe was a piece of watermelon and that watermelon was cured with rose water because I was really into meta, meta, Mediterranean, Middle Eastern flavors. And that one just came together and worked so well, which is interesting because that's not my usual style. My I I tend to uh, labor and work over the cakes I do. But just every now and again, it just comes together like it's meant to be. And at the time, it was just another cake that we were doing. And I remember saying, oh, look, it's been on for like three or four months. We should probably take it off and do something new.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, that never happened. <laughs> mm.
1: Then social media.
0: Yes, okay. there was no social media when I started this. So I remember... I didn't have a Facebook account and there was no Instagram back then. And when these things started, that's when we really started to notice this pickup in, in business and a different kind of clientele coming as well. Because I just wanted to run a little shop for locals, for the new towners. Suddenly we had all these different people coming from all over town and even all over Australia and all over the world coming. Mm-hmm. It was incredible to behold.
1: And so the, that's where the growth started.
0: Well, I come from very small beginnings. So, really, it took five years before I was able to build enough capital to do the next shop. And by that time, Newtown was at breaking point. It was ridiculous. So, I didn't even have a bench to work on, I'd have to pick up a tray and pallet <laughs> uh, batter in the air. It was ridiculous and we were renting a temporary kitchen to get through the weekend um, and customer service had just become a uh, grind to a halt. It, I mean, there was a, like a 45-minute wait to get in the door. Mm-hmm. So we really, really had to uh, grow and I did have to borrow more money um, and that that is one of the problems with when you kind of start too small, yeah, you, you you give everything you've got just to get your door open and then 18 months later you might be finding that you have to go through all that trouble again with a new site.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, so from there it just kept building and growing and everything we made that was left over pretty much just got funneled back into the, the business to to build the next one because our kitchens then became too small and we got to 5 6 stores and by then it was um a big machine and i, I never thought it'd be at that point
1: it's like feeding the beast
0: well yeah yeah it kept going and you know the food was good so i was very happy
1: how did the letting go of black star come to be
0: well i had a shop in melbourne for 6 months mm-hmm. so that was a a great little knock-together cafe. It was great. We just opened this little cafe in the back of a restaurant, and it was super busy. But I had to travel every every two weeks or every week, up and down and up and down. And then when I was in Melbourne, Sydney would start to uh, uh, unravel. And then when I was in Sydney, Melbourne would need me. So I just came to realise that... Uh, I needed to bring in other people. Like the, the brand Blackstar had the ability to go not only around Australia and around the world, but kind of I wasn't the person that was best for that job. Mm-hmm. It needed a lot of money and it needed like a corporate structure and that's not something that, you know, I like doing. Mm-hmm. So I, I was approached by uh, someone. I, it was not on the market. I was happily running my own life. Though it did kind of take a toll on the family. It was very difficult.
1: Well, you have four children. I do. Yeah.
0: And they were young, very young. Like we had four children under four years old. And even Sydney and Melbourne was trying enough. And, the, and just imagine doing like Hong Kong or Singapore or something like that. There was just no way, no way I could do that.
1: So how long ago was that when you sold Blackstar?
0: I sold Blackstar in 2018. I didn't sell all of it. I sold uh, the majority of it. Mm-hmm. And I stayed along for a little while. But unfortunately, I think a lot of people come to know when you sell a business, it just changes for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's impossible for their direction to be exactly the same as your direction. It's just doesn't not going to happen. Uh, so I decided to finish up and take some time off and think about what I want to do next. Mm -hmm.
1: In that time off and in that break period, did you ever use that time to kind of explore without wanting to repeat what you've already done?
0: It was an awkward time and very much felt like I was in limbo. And if any of you really love your work, you find that your identity, your self-identity gets tied up into your work and you almost become who you are at work. And when that's not there, then who are you? So... So I I did try virtually everything I wanted to try, found that something about it didn't quite fit me, and I was in the right place all along, running a small business, running a team of people, serving locals, and that's when I decided to open another cake shop.
1: Let's talk about what's happening in the moment, right now, and I'm going to throw a word at you because I've only just learned it. It's uh, portmanteau. So let's talk about portmanteau. Can you explain to me what that is, and what's that that's leading into for the next chapter of your career?
0: Well, I've got a cake shop opening. The name of it is Hearth, and it's spelt with an e. And that word is made up of other words. And if you look, which at is what portmanteau, port, which is what portmanteau means. Mm-hmm. So you'll see in that word there is the word heart, there's the word art, there's the word earth. There's my name, Tay at the end. There's even here. It's very interesting and it looks great on paper or on a screen. Kinda of sounds funny. I've been telling people it's gonna be hearth and it's made up of these words. Until you kind of see it in front of you. Doesn't quite have the impact than when you see it on a screen, when you see the logo right there.
1: It resonates. Hmm. And So the inspiration towards your new cake shop and cafe hearth.
0: It speaks to, it's a very personal brand, very personal shop. The food's very personal to me. It's what I cook. It's Mm -hmm. what I'm interested, what I want everyone to to try. It's cooking from the heart. Whereas I felt when you're running a factory, that's definitely not cooking from the heart. So, you know, there was a a, a very um, happy time when the business wasn't too big and it was just one shop.
1: Is that where you knew the customers' names? And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with creating your own ecosystem, you know, feeding the community and, and having them feed you.
0: Yes, and also having a, a level of spontaneity that you can do if, mm. uh, you know. Look, it also speaks to my connection to land. I think... As I kind of get a little bit older, I'm, I'm a little bit more philosophical. And I'm, I'm just I'm a real state puttish person. I've been in the same square meter since the day I was born, except for 12 years where I, I lived in the next suburb over when I was young and couldn't afford to be in Haberfield. So, so, all the suburbs, Leichhardt. My dad had a chemist shop in Leichhardt. And I used to be a delivery driver around the suburbs. So, I know every back street. Newtown's where we, I spent my, you know, my my youth.
1: So where is Hearth located?
0: Hearth is located in Stanmore. It's, Stanmore's like a village. It's great. And the locals there are amazing. It's got a little bit more open air than Newtown. It just feels a little bit more open because the, the streets are wider. Mm-hmm. But very much same kind of feel, same people. Uh, I've got an old butcher's shop it's on a corner it's a beautiful building it's federation i, I walked in the first time and it just felt like i felt like i was coming home it felt mm. like me and yes. then within a week the 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 owner of the cafe there decided to put up for sale and within a week i'd signed the deal i just knew this was the place i'd been looking for a place for two years and nothing mm. was quite right Mm. And position's very important for business.
1: So you've been renovating, have you?
0: I have been renovating, Mm -hmm. and it's taken a lot longer and cost a lot more than I thought it would. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Have you had to um, consider differently for hearth the Australian climate and sustainability? Are you looking at it differently? Are you approaching it differently?
0: Definitely differently. I'm quite an idealist, so I've got big plans for what I want to do. Yet, coming back to small business, it's just impossible to do all at once. And Mm -hmm. I have to be realistic about that. So, I feel that it's important to have a plan for where you want to be, but just take chunks at a time as the business kind of puts down roots and can afford more and more nice, sustainable processes. That being said, there are some like principles that you have to hold true and you just can't negotiate with that. But I think it's important. I mean, a lot of businesses claim to be sustainable, but, I mean, how can you measure this and mm-hmm. how can you prove or disprove? And I think the most important thing I want to do with this business is actually show people a plan of what we're doing and where we want to be and how we're going to get there. And then you, you just really, I mean, if you try and tackle every sustainability problem, it's just impossible.
1: All in one hit.
0: There's always another problem to take on. Mm. So really focus on what's important to you and what makes the most impact, most difference, takes away the most carbon.
1: Well, there's a great deal of precision that goes into your work in particular. And how do you balance it? I think
0: that it's important to always have that moment when the diner puts it onto their tongue and that, that kind of first reaction, that's always the, the final goal of what you're doing. And you can kind of lose sight of that if you're dealing with supplies and production and trays and ingredients. But that really is the core of what you're doing. So if you always focused on that, that customer experience, and we, I, I have a term for that, it's like the perfect moment. So every now and again, you taste something and it just makes your brain freeze and almost time stops for a while. And that's the kind of experience you're trying to give to people, and then you work towards that.
1: So, I mean, bakeries are having their moment, and Hearth is an exciting addition to the Sydney scene. What do you hope customers, your customers, will experience that sets Hearth apart?
0: You know, I don't go on social media much, And I try not to because I find myself influenced too much by what other people are doing. Mm. And I have a very strong kind of design language and palette, which I've trained through all these years. And I find if I look at what other people are doing too much, then my work starts to look like their work. And I really want that. I mean, the, the same thing that made that left brain, break the rules philosophy that made the strawberry cake, Mm -hmm. I think you can expect that again as long as I don't try and copy other people's work.
1: And you do see that in the industry?
0: Yeah. Well, it's a design style that kind of evolves and, and I know that if I start looking at other people's work too much, then, then you lose that essence of what the heart style is. And it's an organicness, it's a naturalness. All the cakes look like little landscapes, and that's what they're meant to look like. And they're inspired by natural uh, natural materials. Like I've got a cake with a top and it looks like terrazzo. Mm. And there's, you know, boulders and, and greenery. and.
1: So let's go into ingredients, which you know, I'm passionate about and I know you are too. You've been on many of our Straight to the Source tours and we we talk quite often about ingredients and, you know, Australian native ingredients and and seasonality and how is that driving this new menu?
0: It's not often that you get to taste an ingredient as a chef where you go, wow, I've just never had that flavour before. Mm -hmm. It's very, very rare. Mm. Yet since becoming really into native ingredients, I can almost have that experience weekly. There's just so much out there. Mm -hmm. And there are great producers everywhere starting to um, bring new ingredients and and get them to us.
1: So we talk about nostalgia and and the role that plays. So are you looking at obviously tapping into that but also pushing the boundaries forward?
0: Yeah. Look, it's like if... We're not speaking the same language. We don't understand ourselves. And so much of our uh, thoughts and memories are tied up with language. And food is like a language too. So when I talk about spaghetti and tomato sauce, you know what I'm talking about. Croissants and butter. And so you have to start from our common design language. And then you can bring kind of other elements into it to make it new again.
1: What, what will we expect? The doors are opening. Is there, uh, you know, can we pop in for a coffee and cake or can we also pop in for lunch? Is it open for dinners as well? Where do you see Hearth going?
0: Well, it's a beautiful room and we've gone through a lot of effort to make it a real showcase. The stone counters are going in today. There's a big glass display and you won't see a cake fridge. That was a, a line in the sand I put down and said, this is going to force me to stay true to my principles. Mm. No dessert, fridge. So the cakes are made fresh and then they are built to sit out and, and, you know, be fine. And But you can also, like, pick up cream for the side of it. We're selling jars of cream and some of these creams are like wattle seed infused
2: mm-hmm.
0: or white peach at the moment while they're in season. Mm-hmm. So that's really interesting. You can come in and take away. You can buy a whole cake. You can also get these cakes online and they travel really well. And, do you know, that, that whole idea came from uh, the Sasha Hotel in Austria. So you can, the Sasha Hotel that created the famous Sascha Tort, mm-hmm. another iconic cake, they ship that from their hotel all around the world. And it takes a couple of weeks to get to you. And that just blew me away. And how is that possible? So that started me on the journey of learning how to to preserve food and not by using preservatives, of course, but by these natural and traditional techniques. I even did uh, a food science course to learn more about it. And uh, that actually uh, was something that you put me on. Mm -hmm. That's our concept to consumer course. Concept to consumer course. And that was amazing because... I knew these things instinctively, but they actually put the science behind it mm. and helped me to then have confidence in what I'm doing. So in a nutshell, it's about active water content. So you can have a whole lot of water in your food and keep it moist, but if that water is bound up by chocolate or or not able to um, uh, come in contact with because it's in booze or sugar or salt, then that food is going to last.
1: If I was to ask you, what's the best piece of advice you were ever to receive, either personal or career-wise or both, what would it be?
0: The best piece of advice I ever got was from my chef, Tim Pak Poi, And he said, oh, look, I've always been worried that I wasn't it's a little bit vulnerable I was always worried that I wasn't good enough to be in his restaurant and for months I I was just waiting for that time where he said Chris I need to speak to you it's not working out and eventually I I came clean and said look Tim I'm terrified I'm not good enough and you're going to fire me and he went Chris there's always a place for quality you just keep doing quality and there will always be a place for you and I've kind of kept true to that. So you, you—that's your number one principle. You, you do something of quality, and then there's enough people out there who will support you. And the hard thing is knowing what is quality and what isn't quality. So that's that's where, and then that's where your chef career takes you.
1: Well, we're all very excited for Hearth to be opening in Stanmore. I, I will also say in the show notes, there will be all of your handles, information about Hearth, information about the concept of consumer. If there's any chefs out there that or, or um, producers that want to learn more, we do work with some of the top food scientists in the country on this program and it's online and a big shout out to our friends at unox australia for helping us bring you know with their support we're able to bring concept to consumer to life and offer it up to chefs and producers across the country and i know chris you've been um a huge fan of unox commercial equipment for many years and we are too so um yeah a big thank you to them and i look forward to seeing their gear in action in your new cafe
0: Thank you, Tonya. Well, thank you so much for tuning in with us today. We really hope you enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed the conversation. You'll find links to anything mentioned in today's chat in the show notes.
2: We have some more extraordinary guests lined up and we would love you to join us again. So please make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss future episodes. We'd also love to hear any of your feedback, good or bad, or perhaps you've got a guest you'd love to hear from.
0: You can let us know. And the best way to stay up to date with what we're doing, who we're talking to and where you'll find us around the country is to become part of the Straight to the Source community at straighttothesource.com.au forward slash community. Until next time.